we're back for episode 305 of the Better Call Saul Insider Podcast. My name is Kelly Dixon. I'm here with... Uh, Chris McCaleb. Chris McCaleb. Hey. Hey, how are you doing, Chris? Good, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm great. How's it going over on Narcos? Oh, man. It's crazy. Yeah? Is it it's because crazy. you guys are getting I ready to strung drop your out. episode? Let me tell you. <laughs> is it because all, you guys are getting ready to drop your episode? It's, well, your, no. All your episodes. That, that many, many moons from now. Oh, yeah. okay. No, this right. Pay them in narcotics, I assume. Right. That's right. true. Yeah. It's all cocaine for me. Nice. Yeah, it's great. Nice. It's a whole new, a whole new uh, chapter of my life well, that are, I won't remember. We are super busy over here, too. We just finished uh, editing episode eight oh, wow. over here, and uh, we got two more left. Uh, speaking of which, I guess I'll just introduce our guests. First and foremost guest, uh, the editor of episode 309, and also this episode, Skip McDonald. There, and I only going. say that because, Skip, you're on tap tomorrow. <laughs> 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 we just finished 308, now it's yep. on you. Jump into nine tomorrow. <laughs> so thanks for coming, Skip. Absolutely. Uh, I'm also here with the creators of the show, Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. Hello. Hey. And I'm here with the writer of this episode, Gordon Smith. Hello. And I'm here with co-executive producer Nina Jack. Hi. Who works in Albuquerque. She's our producer producing in Albuquerque. Right. That's Sounds the best good. that I know how to like like kind of present it. It's I need perfect. to come and like figure out. I need to come over there and like just kind of shadow you a come, little bit. Come and, play on set and, with uh, us. And, and we we out miss what you, you out there. And we're also here with uh, DP Marshall Adams. Yay. Hey, thanks, thanks, for, uh, thanks for staying from the last podcast. Yeah. Good to see you. <laughs> All right, cool. This episode is called Chicanery. And I guess my first question is, I, I, I said on the last podcast, the best, one of the most important things about being an editor is paying attention in English class, but I, I embarrassingly don't know what this word means. So can you guys tell me? I mean, roughly, chicanery is, is like dirty tricks. I'm sure there's a better definition that I don't have at my, my fingertips. Somebody with an iPhone probably would. But, uh, but yeah, rough, dirty tricks, hijinks, that kind of you thing. You know, I know that you guys are not going to have a simple answer to this question, but I'll bring it up anyway. And even from Breaking Bad, I think it would change. From what I understand, it would change from year to year. But uh, I guess we can start with this one. How did you guys decide on a title? This year, was it up to you? Or did you guys decide as a, together? Or did you guys decide as a team? Does it come? Does it happen after all the episodes? How did this one come about? I feel like it's 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 always actually kind of a similar process to me at least from from my experience, which has been like you know the writers will pitch something if if you know Vince and Peter like that then then we go with it. But it's usually a discussion like what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Hey, I thought about this. Hey, I thought about this. Is this you know we'll pull lines from the show. What about this line? Do you like that? Oh, I read when I was reading this. I I liked this moment, and so it, it's sort of a discussion. And in this case, we went we went through. A bunch of different things and then we were I think we were in editorial and we're, we're watching the episode and it was like we got to the, to the scene where Chuck says chicanery and it was like maybe that's that maybe that's the title and Peter really liked it and I liked it and so we it also it also has to fit with the the code for the season right. you know is it whatever whatever <laughs> whatever the right. secret message is in, yeah. the, in the in the titles oh, it, so we have to we have a lot and the this code this year to give it away is we're not making that mistake twice let's chat a little briefly because I know that in the first season of Breaking Bad you guys I remember Peter on one podcast you got you said it was something about you guys were thinking about lines from movies like it was lines from movies, I think, and I don't know if all of them were like that, but I know that like to have and have not was. Yeah, and the first season, I, as I remember, Vince said, "Let's. What if we made all the titles quotes for movies?" So the yeah. first two episodes that Vince wrote was the cat, 
Cats uh, the in cat the bag, and, and the bag's in the river. That's yeah. right. That's right. And then... Uh, From I, Sweet Smell of Success. I, one of the great movies ever. Oh, yeah. Great, uh, great, Ernest, great dialogue. Ernest Lehman. Uh, Ernest Lehman and uh, uh, Clifford Odets, right? That's, oh, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, both those uh, guys. So that was, that was the... That was the th- and then the second season started off... It was a code. Well, no, it, it did end up being the code, but it started off with let's... Because we knew that we were going to have this uh, air disaster... Uh, that was going to end the season. So it was, what if we had every episode have some aeronautical implication? Uh, and then I saw, the, I remember pitching things like Taxiway and God knows what. And then as the as the season went on, Vince, I wasn't even there, but then you had this idea of make putting a code into the titles, yeah. which which was uh, you know seven thirty seven down over ABQ, and, and nobody nobody got it. No, well, no, no, nobody out in the world. Well, they didn't know deduced. to look. They would have if they known to look for it. Yes, yes because they did no one, get it. They did. They got they it later. Did get it. But but nobody during the run of the show. I mean, it was the as infancy. As far as we know. Yeah. Inf- as far as we knew. Sorry, as far as we know, it was the infancy of uh, fandom on the internet. So, uh, and that and we we drew from that the uh, the great conclusion that we should put another code in for season. Uh, but like the other episodes two. didn't yeah. follow that, right? I don't remember. I they, I don't think they did. The other uh, the, the ones in between those le- those Kelly words. consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of did it when he thought it would be cool. I mean, well, in season one, it's back to this show at hand. Uh, season one. We wound up thinking uh, we could end every single episode title with O. With so O, we, yeah. Uno, Bingo, Rico, Rico, Marco, an Alpine Shepherd boy. Yeah, and I, you know, I only bring this up because I don't think we've. Ever, I know we've talked about titles before, but we've never talked about them, you know, over the whole run. And it's kind of interesting because I know that. Like, I believe last year and this year, pretty much all the working titles were TBD, TBD, yeah. TBD, or the number, 301, 30, you know, titles like are that. Tough. Titles yeah. are tough. So that's why I kind of wanted to bring it up and ask, you know, since we were talking about this title, you know, what is the process? And there is no regular process. No, you guys have done it differently every year. Yeah, every year done differently. Because <clears throat> uh, last year, first year, just ended with O. I thought for sure someone season one would think, well, there's got to be a hidden code in here. Every episode ends with O except for this one episode, Alpine Shepherd Boy. That's got to be some hint. And there was no code, if anyone's looking at it now suddenly with renewed uh, interest. This season, the titles are interesting. It's something we should maybe talk about when we get to the end of the season because I, there's not a code, but there's definitely a theme. Let's Put a, say a thematic focus to uh, so there's there is a I think there's the titles for me anyway they kind of tell a story I don't think it gives anything away to say that it's not there's but there's definitely no code there's no uh, you don't need to put it through uh, your Enigma machines this time yeah. and uh, maybe next season we'll do one that actually requires like a secret decoder ring yeah, that we can uh, that we can give <laughs> so out we as can a prize. sell. That's right. So like you get over at the end. That's right. <laughs> no, but you know, it, the, the, just and last I'll say about it because we got probably more interesting things to talk about. But but titles titles are important, and they're tricky to come up with. I'm not just talking about titles for individual episodes, but the title of the series it's of a series itself. I think I think titles are important, and I think a lot of writers maybe don't think as much about the title as they should because I think the title is your first is your first teaser, your first thing that hooks you potentially, and and so many movies over the years I've, or TV shows or whatever I've seen, not to name any names because I can't even think any off the top of my head examples, but there's so many things I've, uh, you know, 
movies and whatnot in my life I've, I've seen a commercial for or, or you know and it's just a very bland kind of a title that it's just some turn of phrase that everybody's heard a million times and the ones that stick with me are the ones that are just a little bit off a little bit different the ones that stick in your memory because the the boring ones you know don't really i don't know Well, there was that period where all movies had to have a title that was a song title from the Motown era. So every movie was, yeah. you know, a movie with a with, with a working title called Significant Other, then became When a Man Loves a Woman. So, you know, this this is uh, this you know it's a it, it's 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 a, one of the problems is when you are dealing with these big corporations, uh, they want to go with what's worked before. Yeah, so that's, that's true. That, anyway, that's but that, we have more important things to talk about. Okay. We'll probably, I thought that was pretty important. We got, yeah. the, we got the brain. We got the brain trust here. But anyway, uh, this episode was written by Gordon, directed by Daniel Sackheim. Though Daniel, he, and he, but I gotta say, Daniel Sackheim directed the shit out of this Damn episode. Sackheim. He did such Damn a the man wonderful Sackheim. job. Yeah, yeah this you gotta is, say this, that about every single no, director. You know what? He this is the first time Vince has Vince and Nina, I think, have worked with Dan before yeah. on X Files, and right. this was my first time working with him, and I had. Such, I, I, I thought he was wonderful. He added uh, so much to this episode. And part of the reason I'm saying this out loud is hoping that it gets back to him and he'll think to himself, I, I got to direct more episodes uh, of that no. show. I worked with because him before. He Likewise. Is, uh, yeah, so oh, he, so everyone's worked with him except dances, for me. He, it's, it, 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 I, I'd like to even just conceptually, like, how did you guys take what could have been, and I said this to you too, Gordon, sort of off mic, but how did you take an episode that could have been boring for real boring and kind of cliche if if it if it wasn't done so exquisitely it's almost all in one location it's one thing that's happening and you know it's a courtroom drama of which there are a billion like we talked about even in season one of the podcast and none of it feels like something i've seen before and it's like from moment one, it just moves. The whole episode just moves when it could just sit there. And I'd like to hear a little bit, was, was, was there any discussion about that even in the writer's room conceptually? How do we take something that is like the courtroom episode and make it not like something that we've seen before? Because it uh, really isn't. Well, that's, that's, that's very kind of you to say and good to hear. Um, I, I'm still worried that people won't, won't, you know, quite quite be interested. But I think we were concerned about that all along because it feels there's a sense a bit that we were like, all right, we have to do this. Like we, we'd been kind of moved, we'd, we'd avoided going into the courtroom for so long. And it was like there was just no way that it would feel satisfying for, for Jimmy and Chuck to get out of this without having their day in court. It's obviously it's a it's a it's a bar hearing. So we got we were able to make it a little bit weird and a little bit different, and it's not something, you know, it also allowed us to take some some liberties because not a lot of people, there's not a lot of bar review hearings on TV. <laughs> so uh, so we could, we, could, we could fudge some things here and there. So we were, we were cautious of that, and I think we just kind of wanted to make, I, I think for me at least, one of the things that, that grounded it when we were talking about it was like, who gives a shit about like, what's the procedure and who gives a shit about like what what the sort of legality is but if we if we took it as a way to put these characters to have conversations that they've never had like the, these are, these are long simmering problems that they've had that they've they've had out in little bits and pieces but the the big thing is they've never really sat down and been like okay chuck are you crazy or what like what's going on with this and so when it became personal i think that was sort of the that to me at least was sort of the engine that made it be like okay this makes sense and like 
yes, there's a legal framework. Yes, it's it's about that procedure, but it's primarily about taking everything that is the legal procedure and using it as a, as a, a way to tell the subtext, which is all the, the jousting that's going on interpersonally. So. And I, I also like, this is my first time seeing the episode last night. I came back from the mix from, and from dinner last night to watch it, and it was, it was really great. I had not read it. I'd only read the outline of it, so I knew the story, but I hadn't read it. And I thought it was very, very fun, but I also liked the way that, you know, Jimmy is implicated. Kim now has, she's in on it too. I mean, she's kind of put her career in a little bit of jeopardy by being in on this. And it really showed how, as a team, they have come up with a war plan going through this thing. And it really shows how, it shows their ingenuity. It shows their willingness to be a team sort of set against this guy. But like in the way that you guys open it, where you're hearing, I guess, what is it, the opening arguments or the opening thing for Skip, help me out, the yeah, opening wait. thing from the lawyer, but you're seeing them being very domestic yeah. together, which is something we don't really that. get to see. Thank you. And, and so it, it sort of intercuts with that, and I like that because it really does set them up as a team. You know, Jimmy has a whole different attitude than Kim has about this, and they're going to sort of – I was surprised towards the towards the middle because I basically thought Jimmy, being the defendant, wasn't actually going to get to argue. And so when he starts to – I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Um, I didn't know that you could – that they could do that, but I thought it was really cool. But I did like – I'm sorry to go on, but I did like how they were basically set up as a team against a, a common – sort of enemy using the enemy's game against himself. Absolutely. Which, again, goes to a very, very strong story. I think this is one of the best episodes we've ever had. I mean, I'm just going to go on record. that This this is, uh, it may be the best. I, it, I, I, although we got some amazing ones coming up. I, I just think uh, outstanding job starting with the script, uh, the, the directing, the editing, the acting. I, I, I think you're being very modest, Gordon. The same as you were saying a minute ago. It, uh, this thing is just fantastic. And you want to talk a little uh, back at the script stage about uh, the help uh, you got from uh, from REL and from that uh, oh, that yeah. video yeah, that yeah. The video we, we all watched. We had something. Uh, we had our, our our you know our wonderful assistants Ariel Levine and uh, Johnny Gomez and stuff. And they were they were looking through. Johnny was in in touch with the New Mexico Bar Association to sort of get details on how disbarment hearings work. And Ariel went and dug up a an actual not not New Mexico we couldn't find one on video for New Mexico I think it was a North Carolina case um, that that there was the entire disbarment hearing was was on video which I watched it was like five or six hours or something like that it was, it's, it's lengthy um, was it as exciting as the episode no <laughs> no of course not it, it, it was weirdly not, fascinating but it's fascinating and there's a lot of yeah there's there's a lot of details that are interesting and you know the, in that case as to, to your point Kelly like the the defendant because they're an attorney did they have absolutely just represented herself in that oh, okay. case so there actually was no defense attorney there was in, no in defense that, attorney did she win that one uh, no, no. Oh, Spoiler alert! No. <laughs> no, no, she did not. Uh, but it's you know it's the kind of thing where you're arguing for your license, so there's there's the the rules are slightly different and they're 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 a little bit weirder. We we kind of had to combine some of the steps of the process. Um, I think they're probably like the there would have been more of an evidentiary hearing and then a presentation of evidence and so forth. So we we kind of 
combined witness testimony and a bit of the evidentiary procedures together because we wanted to get into them. Who knew to, court was so complicated? Yeah, well, I mean, especially for something like this, it's it's so technical. It's such yeah. a like you're you're it's it's a bar. But you made it fascinating, and so. you did it by getting to the heart of the characters and and the emotion of the characters. You wanna mm -hmm. you wanna I don't know if you do or not. You wanna talk about the help you got from your family? Sure. I mean, I obviously I talked to my sister who we've 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 tapped a lot for for this kind of thing um my sister's an attorney and so uh, she read yes her name is leah lesner uh she's is a north carolina attorney um but yeah so so i talked to my sister and she read the pages and was like okay well this and she had a lot of good points about like okay well you know you can get away with some of this stuff but cross is going to should feel different the kinds of questions you ask are different and the the way you ask a question of your witness is different and so you want to kind of allow for that you know obviously we had some some things that we would we we needed to do dramatically that kind of took precedence over precisely how you would lead somebody through a cross because you really wouldn't want to leave like when kim is crossing howard you really just want yes or no answers you just want to lead and make it so that all they can say is yes or no because so you don't want to leave you don't want to leave things open as much but it felt like okay that's fine we can do that somewhat but there's places where it's going to be more fun for her to say so who you know who was most opposed to this and have him have to say charles mcgill yeah. rather than it was charles mcgill who did this right and him just saying yes it seemed more fun to let and and i think uh, you know patrick was able to play more for with that with sort of those fun moments of like who's who's the other h and hhm that was a great that was fantastic that whole that whole run was that's fantastic so so between Kim and uh, Howard I love that and and Patrick was great uh, Ray was great yeah so we had to uh, there, there were things like that we had to shift with some of the sort of ways that an actual attorney would approach you know their their line of questioning in order to make give a little bit more room for the fun of it I think but hopefully it's not too hopefully it, you know the, we, we always want to make sure that the lawyers watching the, the show aren't like this is just stupid and this is totally this is so far afield that it feels like it's you know not really any kind of legal procedure so it felt yeah. real to me but I'm I'm, I'm a layman but I one, don't of, know. one of the things I just have to mention is that uh, you know of course this is a different kind of episode for us the scenes are very long we end the uh, the episode with a, a 12 minute long scene which is I think is as long as any scene we've ever done and of course there's an immense don't forget an immense amount of dialogue for the for the cast and this is you know we uh, I, I have to say I think on a lot of shows, we would hesitate before before having these incredibly long runs of dialogue. And I, I was lucky enough, it just so happened that I happened to go to Bob's house while this episode was in prep. And we made a special effort to have a finished script a little bit early because we knew that the actors would need, need prep time. I went to Bob's house and there was Bob and Michael and Ray and Patrick sitting around Bob's, uh, sitting around Bob's kitchen table uh, with scripts uh, running the scene, and this was over. This was maybe ten days before before the episode even even started. I'm going to guess wow. something like that. That's and nice. they they were they were already running the scenes, and they were asking questions about mm -hmm. them. But they uh, just I, I can't say it. How and no often, one no one asked them to do that, right? Uh, no one asked them to do that. I can't say often enough or strongly enough how lucky we are with this cast that is. Boy, they're incredibly talented. They're brilliant actors, but they're also so detail-oriented and diligent. And they show up on the day having really thought about the work that's going on. 
And, and the one thing that we do that, to try to help them with that is to give them a script that doesn't change an awful lot. I remember on Breaking Bad, too, sometimes having a, uh, uh, Aaron having a big scene and at him be on the set and he says, do you think this is going to change a lot? And I, I was able to say in a couple cases, no, I don't think it's going to change very much at all. Yeah. I think we've been through it. So that's, that's the thing that we try to do is to give them a script that, that's, that's solid and doesn't change an awful lot when yeah. they first get it. Yeah. But after that, they go and they run with it. Yeah. Which I think actually helped us a lot in this case, but not just for that rehearsal, but and the actors are very giving of their time because they, they came out on the Sunday before we started getting into this. And we had a rehearsal in the actual space with Dan. And I think, Nina, you were there, right? And Marshall, were you there for the, for the uh, No, rehearsal? I don't think I was there that day. Okay. I was there the day, but I spent the day before. Yeah. We, oh, that's Dan. right. You were there the day before because we were, we were stuck. I can't remember. I think it was five out of eight shooting days or something like that in that wow. space. Four or five, yeah. yeah. And so it was this challenge, which, you know, you and Dan worked out really well, Marshall, to just figure out, you know, we can make it be on the page and kind of have its thrust, but we're stuck in this one room for more than half the running time. And so it's, I, I don't know how you guys did it to find angles and continually kind of feel like it was moving and the Absolutely. light is moving and the is time it, is moving. Is that a soundstage set or is that a, is no. that a real place? It was a, it was a practical location. Well, oh, actually, man. I shouldn't say that. They, to Michael Novotny's credit and to everybody's credit, they picked a location uh, that we could work with, that we could shoot through the windows, had the right feel, but basically built the entire set inside of it wow. from, the, from the ground up. So from the, from the color of the ceiling tiles to all of the furniture, everything was, was picked and, nice. and, and placed perfectly. So, nice. uh, so we had that. But the challenge for us, for my, myself uh, mostly, was dealing with the, the daytime outside the window. Yeah. You know, it was the wintertime, and so we had a limited amount of daylight available. And so we had to pick angles uh, in specific scenes where we knew there would be daylight outside. And sometimes we had to uh, say that there was no way we were going to have daylight outside the window and we'll just have to, to blow the windows out. And so we cover it with, cover the windows with some diffusion and backlight them and make it look like day outside. So, so there was a definite uh, balance as to which shots and what parts of the scenes that we could see out the windows and, and how we were going to approach it. So wait, so where was this? It's in the, like, it's actually sort of around the corner from that, like, elevator bank where we've seen Jimmy and, and uh, uh, Mike meet and that kind of stuff. It's it, in that it, sort of police. It's a building downtown yeah. that we actually sort of become, like, stage three. Because <laughs> yeah. we do right. courtrooms, we do police hallways. Oh, okay. There's so many locations in this building that, that <clears throat> they've been so wonderfully accommodating to us. And just a complete side note, this particular space where we built this courtroom is a space where we also built a set for the pilot. It's where we did the video of the morgue. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's our court, our courthouse building mm -hmm. uh, that we've used for since day, since uh, the pilot. But yeah, so we shot that little uh, handheld video of the of the, of the where dead we guy getting his head sawed off. The, yeah, boy, the boys, right. which yeah. by the way, I, I've been yeah. on the set a few times when you're directing. I think that was the most excited that I've ever seen you <laughs> with directing. It's it made you know it was it was you you were you were in there with those kids yeah. and they. Uh, and decapitating the body, and you brought <laughs> you you help me understand the sense of fun it would be it would take mm -hmm. to go into a uh, into a to morgue, go into a morgue, morgue and, yes. and saw yeah. off a head and, and, and then and then have, have your way with it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's but, you know it, it, life's a rich pageant. <laughs> it is. It is. Wait, and, so why why didn't you build it on on the stage then? I think, and I think to what you were saying, Marshall, maybe you disagree, but I, I like when you say like 
keep being able to shoot out those windows even not even though half the time it was night and we just had to had to go away it really keeps it alive like you you just get a sense that there's a world outside and that we're not we're not bullshitting and that this is a real court space it it felt more like we were I don't know. To, to me, at least, it's like just even those little things. And there's a couple of like times where you see reflections of cars going by inside the the courtroom. It doesn't feel as as hermetic. It doesn't feel as uh, as bullshitty to me <laughs> to, yeah. to be able to just keep it keep the world alive outside. That's a good answer. So, I also have to I have to give credit to Dan Sackheim again here because we're on the verge of picking a location before uh, just as he as he arrived in Albuquerque that was that was very different and was not as good. And Dan championed the idea of going and taking another look around and, and in fact, taking it because we were, t- we were thinking of using a space that was more or less already laid out for a hearing. And instead, Dan championed the idea of, of going it and, and, and going another way. He added so many touches to this episode. I just, I just, I think he deserves all the praise we can we can give him. I wish you were here. He's he's busy working on yet another project. Do you do you recall why he wanted? What was he looking for that was lacking in that first one you picked? I think some of the discussion, and we, we found a lot of things. There's, and this is something that we we struggle with a lot. Is just that like there's a lot of stuff in Albuquerque that feels very very new, and fe- there was. A kind of a building boom and so we had a space and it was good and it was sort of really the kind of thing that you would do in this space but this was something that felt more worn it felt a little bit more used it had more character to it it felt a little bit more workaday and less fancy to me to, and so we were able to build towards that this oddly enough this used to this room used to be a courthouse mm-hmm. and then they stripped it and it was being used for other things but then we were able to turn it back into a courtroom so that's that's right that's right gordon and now that you're bringing it back to me this is one of the things that we struggled with a little bit there was a building boom in the early 90s in albuquerque and so uh, a lot of the buildings end up looking a lot like hhm and so we've mm-hmm. had sometimes we have a problem with finding office spaces and places like that 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 have any uh, have any age on them uh, and so that's one of the reasons we made such such use of that building that, that Nina was talking about, that former courthouse downtown. And then, Marshall, back to uh, I want to hear more about how you really, in this one room, not only did you guys have to, all you guys working together as a team, had to figure out how to make this one room interesting for five days out of eight days of production, but you had to figure out how to make it different times of day on different days. And did you block shoot that stuff? Or once you were in a certain day and a certain time, did you shoot all that? and then change the light for the next scene, or did you go back and forth? How did that work? Yeah, I, we we attacked the scenes individually. I mean, I think there was one chunk in the middle that we carried over uh, just uh, as a courtesy to the actor because he had so much to, to say during that, that particular scene. But we, we definitely, we would start a scene and try to finish it, so it would kind of stand on its own, and there was a lot of consideration put into the time of day and, and, and hoping that the, that you know the the room would change during the course uh, of the procedure, so that so that you could really get a sense of the world outside and and the fact that you know there's different times of day and the way it kind of develops. So uh, and and to Steve Latecki's credit and Michael Novotny's too. Steve Latecki's the gaffer and Michael's the the production designer. They literally built that room uh, from scratch. I mean to the to the painting the ceiling tiles to every individual fluorescent in there and uh, Steve having individual control of each tube in there so that we could turn them on and off and, and really kind of shape the room that way. Uh, so it, uh, so you know, it, 
definitely given a lot of the tools going in so that we can so we can do the best job that we can do with the you know with the limitations of the time that we it, have occasionally the idea would come up could we steal uh, a reaction from Oops. a later scene and put it in the earlier scene or vice versa and then you'd look at it and say, no no because each scene has its own specific look and so sometimes uh, and it, it, it was fascinating to even try that because you would see you would see no is it that soft lit from the side that has the fluorescence on and then of course uh, the big climactic sequence uh, where they've had to turn off all the all the lights for Chuck and I know Chuck's elect electrical allergy has caused us so many problems <laughs> uh, in the course cinematography problems in the course of the show but boy it, 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 uh, it he, the fact that when he shows up, the room changes really does make for a great dramatic statement. It's wonderful. It sure, I love the way you guys. I love the way Dan directed it. I love the way you cut it. That, when, yeah, when he shows up, and then the whole thing about. I mean, just you know, this you're looking for some sort of Perry Mason moment, and by you know, as Chuck says derisively, and then by God, you give him the Perry Mason. <laughs> except you give it to him. Just it's just awesome. You want to talk about? Speaking of which, yeah, a little bit of uh, inspiration came from a particular movie. Oh, sure. I mean, it's 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 no secret. I think that. You know, well, folks on the show like the Kane mutiny. <laughs> so clearly, we 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 are indebted heavily uh, in that climax, and in the, even in just sort of talking through and figuring out what what the impact of the episode would be and how how it would be. It's it, this is our strawberries moment. This yes, is, this is our the the battery in the pocket was our our quarter strawberries. Which yeah. if nobody knows what I'm, if you if you don't know what what we're talking about when we say that go watch the Kane mutiny you'll, you'll, do yourselves a favor yeah just go do yourself a favor mutiny. it's it's yeah, yeah. it's great and just that moment that that uh that humphrey bogart has breaking down on the stand is it's it's fantastic i so. think i think there's another famous uh, movie that owes a debt to uh Kane mutiny i can't think of one <laughs> can you <laughs> I, Before, I, I would also mention and maybe this this shows my age I, actually one of my teachers at usc was uh eddie dimitrick who directed the Kane mutiny and he was, uh, he was, wow. uh, so that's, it's, it was, it was a remarkable thing to get to sit in a classroom with this guy and, and to, who had directed the K-Mutiny and, and, and so many other classic movies. And he, he was at the time older, but still, you know, with enough energy to stand on top of a desk to make a point. And wow. uh, he was, wow. a, he was a remarkable person. He was also one of the Hollywood 10. So anyone who's uh, interested in film history, uh, Eddie Dimitriks, I, I think he's an understudied director because he, he, he also started, as Skip will find this interesting and Kelly, he started as an editor. And so oh, really? he, uh, oh, the good he, ones he had, do. He, he had, he had, <laughs> he had a wonderful editorial eye and just a very interesting guy. And what an amazing career. And yeah. the writer is still, as I think as we record this, is still alive. Herman, Herman, woke. Herman woke is still oh, yeah. alive. He's like 104 now or something I, like that. He stays woke. He does. <laughs> Speaking of which, didn't Dan Sackheim start as, a, as an editor too? That's is that I, think so. I believe he did. Did he? Yeah. 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 Actually, Helen, Helen had worked with him as an assistant editor I did 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. I did yeah. not know that. His dad was a was a wonderful uh, writer producer as well, I believe. He comes from uh, a great uh, film background. He is so talented. I wish... Uh, Wish we could get him on one of these things sometime. One of the first episodes, I, uh, uh, me as a writer on, on X-Files, uh, was lucky enough to get to write. He directed, uh, and I just learned so much from him. He's just a very talented Which guy. one was it? I think it was Kitsunagari, mm -hmm. if I'm pronouncing that right. It was uh, 
It was it to be fair, it was not I, I had a bunch of good directors uh, directing my stuff on that movie, but it was it was within a season or two of me getting there and uh, I learned a lot from watching him. Every director has his or her own style and you'll learn a lot, especially if you keep your eyes open. You learn an awful lot from all of them and he just puts it on the screen cleanly. He's he's there's an uh, elegant economy to the way he does it and there's some wonderful shots in this and again it's 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 this is basically it's kind of a bottle episode like you're saying it's or most of it is in this one room and he comes up with so many wonderful shots i love that and, and yet it's, and you're as you're talking marshall on the last podcast it's great to come up with the cool snazzy shots but if they don't move the story forward they're just empty they're just an empty exercise and to give an example in this in this episode there's a great shot raking the ceiling past uh, a glowing red exit sign. And when you first see it, you're like, that's a cool shot. Okay, it's a cool, it is a cool shot. And then you realize as the folks walk in and, and, and mention is made of the exit sign, you realize, well, that's not just a cool shot. It moves the story along because yeah, they're talking about, can we turn off all the electricity in this room? Well, no, sorry, the building, the fire code is such, you can't turn off the exit sign. So oh, I'll be okay. Thanks for your understanding all this all these great shots the shot of the another one that sticks in my mind the shot of the reflection of the three judges in the in the, in the clock, in the wow. clock. Yeah, that and that that tells you know that a, there's a ticking clock in this in this there there is you know there is drama you know it's just somehow it, it's all part of the i love it and chuck, chuck in the house standing in front of the windows oh yeah the the jfk the, shot. the homage to jfk yes. i definitely wanted to we talked a lot about the courtroom and obviously this this episode is dominated by the courtroom, but there is a lot of story that's happening in the teaser that I wanted to oh, bring yeah. up. And before we started this it's podcast, I was asking <laughs> you guys, just so I would have a little bit more authority on on it while I ask these questions. Last night when I was watching the episode, I was like, for the longest time, I kept saying, wait, wh- what What time are we in? Because there's, there's little things to deduce. It's like, okay, Jimmy and Chuck are still buddy. They're still okay together. But Rebecca's not here, so Rebecca's coming over. But obviously, Chuck and Rebecca are not together. So what happened there? And and wait, there's a refrigerator and a stove. Wait, so I'd like you to, if you can, Gordon and uh, obviously Vincent and Peter, can you guys go back to last summer when you were talking about this this teaser? And can you talk to us a little bit about sort of the genesis of this whole thing? Sure. Um, I mean, we started. It was last summer, so, so. Yep, <laughs> it's a little rusty. But, <laughs> uh, we, you know, in terms of figuring out the timing of it, we kind of, at, at fairly early on in the process, we were like, you know, towards that sense of like, what's the deepest cut Jimmy can make? Like, if he's scorching the earth, what is he scorching the earth with? And we're like, well, what about Rebecca? Maybe that's the that's the thing. We never really had but a to chance. to bring her to court to throw Ch- Chuck off. But that would only work for us if we knew the circumstance. We kept being like, yeah, but we don't know what happened. We right. don't know what the state of their relationship was or is at, at this point because we know when we saw the flashback to what, like 1993, I guess, is the, the sort of Jimmy arriving in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in Albuquerque. They were co- cold and cooling, it seemed like. So... Maybe they weren't necessarily going to survive too long. By the time we see Jimmy getting his law degree in 108, Chuck's not wearing a, a ring. So the divorce has happened by then. And, and the he's around electricity. Yeah, the electric, so the electricity, yeah. he's still okay with electricity. So we were kind of, so much of the, I, I find like so much of these things are, are 
puzzle pieces that were like, okay, well that happened with this character in this year, and we and we're here. So what could have been a step? It's it's a little bit like piecing together a fossil record. It's like, well, okay, what's the transitional form between Archaeopteryx and birds? I don't know. What would that what would that form look like? So we kind of. Like, <laughs> Gordon, you're no. so smart. No, I no, I just if Tom, if Tom was sorry, here, this is just the podcast. I know, I know. <laughs> this is just the podcast that I happen to be listening That's to good. on my way here. So, so it's like it's that kind of thing. And then we we sort of reverse engineered from there. Like, what's where? Where would this be? They are Jimmy and, and Chuck are still in, in good on good terms. We, this is around. This is you know we put Jimmy in his brown suit. This is Jimmy's sort of nail salon Jimmy before the start of uh, the series. So roughly 2001, and we so were I'm like gonna, trying gonna, to work through it from I'm going to help um, also because it helped me when I was asking you guys before the podcast. So this is before Jimmy knows that Chuck didn't want him in HHM, right. but after he's hung his own shingle at the nail salon. Yes. Okay, that's just a little bit of background for you all. Okay, yes. go ahead, Gordon. No, I think that's that's, that's it. So, um, so then we started figuring, we had to start doing the kind of, what did it look like when Rebecca, what, what is the state of, of... Now, you know, when you're discussing this, this just brought up a thing for me just now, and I'm curious to know, I don't think I've ever asked you guys this question. Did you feel, I'm sure there have been other times for this kind of question, but all of a sudden it came to me. Did you feel in this situation that you were going to have to make decisions like before you wanted to make decisions about this relationship, like in the writer's room, did you guys feel oh. like, wait, now we have we have to determine this, ah, uh, you know? Um, no, I think we, we talked through, we had a sort of vague working knowledge of what we thought Rebecca and Chuck were and what had happened to okay. them. And so we, what we really, but we, what, we, what we didn't know was, okay, even if we knew that that, ha if they had divorced by 1998, that's still a good four years or so before the start of the series. What happened in between? Did are they on good terms? Are they on bad terms? It, what what if she, if they're on terrible terms? How could Jimmy get her to the courtroom? If they're on what what would the thing what would the the, the givens be that would allow us to kind of maneuver in the way that we wanted to? And so that then we just started hacking it out. Like okay, well this doesn't work. We we went through a lot of things. We had we had reams of scenes uh, of what Jim, we, we had to talk through what Jimmy's phone call would be to her. What pitch could That's he possibly right. make to get her here? Oh, you mean, wait, not for the teaser, but... We had to talk to them in concert because okay. we were, because knowing what, where we wanted to go and knowing that we, we, it felt right for her to show up and it felt right for that to be the gambit that, so we had to sort of figure out what that pitch would be and then also know at the same time what had happened and so those things were kind of working in concert so uh, towards one end so because when i was watching the teaser one of my questions was as i watched it i'm like okay well okay so obviously they are separated at that teaser right they're not divorced because he's still asking him should i wear it should i not wear it with the wedding ring right but also right am i not i, I read it that that my, I, that's a very good question. Are, are they divorced or are they just separated? Well, why would he still wear the ring well, around he, her? Cause he, cause he, well, because he loves her, right? Uh, really? The, the, when we were talking about it, it was sort of like, is, is this a, a gesture like, hey, I know we're divorced, but I'm still not over you. I'm still holding on. Oh, or, okay. is, or is it, we, we hadn't necessarily nailed down. I, I think because of how long it's been between this, see, we see him without the, the ring 
in the way back. So maybe they're separated. It's possible if we if we find some utility it, in that later. I but think I think we're working on the idea that she's they're divorced. I think our thought was oh. how is it possible she doesn't know that about his allergy to electricity? And so if if they were in any kind of regular contact, she would know. Uh, and so I think that was why that was what led me to think. But yeah. like, like Gordon says, if we haven't said it on the show, by the way, if we haven't said it on the show, we still we maintain flexibility. Right. But that, that right. I, I guess I always assumed that they were divorced. But Chuck is still Chuck still loves her. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's just that's just clear to me that he loves her and wants her respect. And that's one of the things I find so heartbreaking about that teaser and and uh, and, and it's and Ann Cusack is is just so oh, great, great. Her so back. wonderful in this and also I just also talking about this teaser uh, Marshall lit Chuck's house in a totally new way here uh, it, Marshall is that now what what's going on when we see Chuck Chuck has lit all these candles what's 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 going on there uh, from your point of view you mean the, the well because it, this this I'm, I'm tr- asking a leading question yeah that Chuck is they're trying to put over to Rebecca that they've just that he's he's uh, he's lit some candles as a as a temporary measure uh, because, because the electricity's cut off yeah and so that meant that that meant the inside of the house was uh, ostensibly lit more through candles, I guess, than, than we've seen before. And so it looks different. And, and can you talk about why, why the house looks different in this scene? Uh, well, mostly uh, because we were using, I mean, in the, in the other, in the present day, or the present day Saul scenes, we use the, the lanterns pretty much to light the interior of Chuck's for, uh, for the night stuff. But to, uh, to continue this fable about the power being off, um, Chuck, obviously, with Jimmy's help, decided to, to light all of these candles and kind of give it a romantic feel. So um, I remember that uh, Robin Sweet, our producer, came to me early on is because that's a, that can be a, a, a huge challenge, especially in a set that large, to shoot uh, with candlelight only because there's a, it involves an enormous amount of lighting and also putting all of that lighting on uh, flicker generator so that it can feel like candlelight. So we came, actually she came with the original idea, uh, full circle to, to, to use the Panasonic Barycam again with its super fast chip uh, that we had used on episodes one and two with Vince. Uh, and would that benefit us? Would it help us time-wise? And I, so we went in and shot some tests and it absolutely did. It allowed us to shoot almost strictly with candlelight. So wow. uh, we, we shot that entire teaser, which is a considerable amount of screen time. Yeah. I wouldn't want to hazard a guess, but anyway, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like all with pages. candlelight. Uh, I, I think we occasionally put a teeny tiny bit of, of extra light in, but mostly actually I filled in with other candles wow. that are off screen. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so Barry, you went full on Barry Lyndon there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I wow. mean, if you do the math in, in foot candles, um, which I have done in a couple of them, there, there are a number of those shots that are one and two foot candles exposure-wise on the on the actors' faces, Gee, which is, wow. if you know anything uh, about foot candles and photography, that is absolutely nothing. Wow. So, so, and that's, I mean, I came to that conclusion only by counting the candles and the distance from them to the actors' faces, but nothing highly technical in this. So how tough was that scene on the uh, on our wonderful uh, first assistants who had to get the focus just nuts on right on the eyes? 
Yeah, I mean, they're all a challenge for them. I mean, you know, obviously the depth of field gets shallower and shallower, especially. I mean, I think, I'm pretty sure, and if I remember correctly because it was a while ago, uh, we shot a lot of that with prime lenses, which meant that we were even more open than usual. Um, so the depth of field was even even less. But they have a lot of new tools that, that help them along. So, okay. uh, uh, yeah, they, they, okay. they've got a lot of little cheaters. You know, they, ha they have a false color and they even have a thing now that it'll put little x's where the where the the depth where the the sharp part of the frame oh, is wow. so okay. they can actually tell while they're moving it where it's landing oh that's so, cool yeah it's amazing the tools that, that, that those guys have available to them now and that's when you're that uh, uh shallow a depth of focus and you're shooting a human face there's only one thing that's all because you may have it may be so shallow that not even all of the person's face may be in focus. So what are you always looking for? Always looking for the eye. Yeah. That, that, I know we're in trouble when, when one of the focus pullers will say, which eye do you want? Wow. <laughs> and they literally have said that before. <laughs> yeah. There's another old school uh, filmmaking aspect to the sequence as well. When Chuck is in the kitchen and is getting very uh, freaked out by the phone, there's another old school aspect used. Yeah. I, uh, uh, to Dan's credit, we he and I met for uh, during a couple of lunches while we were at the stage on a previous episode and talked about the the episode and a lot of his approach and one of them was coming up with a, with an interesting uh, uh, I don't know uh, kind of point where Chuck really kind of loses it at the end uh, of that particular scene and what would be a great way to to approach that and so one of the things that I threw out was uh, was a hand crank camera using actually 35 millimeter film and you you rather than using an electric motor to progress it you actually hand crank it which means you can crank backwards and back over so that you get these double and triple exposures which cause that kind of jitter effect that you guys yeah. established early on for Chuck. Yeah. So to his credit I kind of threw it out there with uh, like nine other ideas and he and Melissa took it and ran with it and nice. uh, and came back to me with uh, with the idea of, of proceeding with that. So we shot a couple of tests and, and they looked great. The biggest challenge actually turned out to be when we got there that we had been shooting for two days at 5,000 ASA <laughs> and that that film was 500 <laughs> ASA oh and, I, and it blew my mind how much more light I had to put in to get that shot wow. to work. Wow. It uh, really it, it showed me how little light we were really working with at that time. And this, this is, I think, the only time so far we've ever shot with film on Better Call Saul. Which makes me sad. It makes me <laughs> sad, too. Because I miss film. Well, we had the loaders were, were terrified, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. were they? Were oh, they did, yeah, did you, did you have to explain terrified. what film was to the kids? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, they, they live and die by those digits. So uh, yeah. so the thought of, of, you know, needing a changing bag and being able to load film was... was was a new challenge. Did for they us. literally had to be shown how to how to? How yes, to, yeah. literally had to. Yeah, one of the one wow. of the older assistants who had done it a lot wow. uh, had to show them how to do wow. it. That's, My, wow. that's wonderful. And one of the things I, I'm so proud of with the show uh, is that we hear we have this this character who's got this allergy to electricity, and we want to show what that looks like and, and how how we put that over. And our directors have all found different ways of conveying the feeling of being allergic to electricity. Mm -hmm. So, and you're gonna see, you'll see more variations still this season, but I love the fact that um, it's like a catalog of different approaches to expressing this instead of us settling, you know, cause there is a world where we could have settled 
uh, in season one, okay, this is how we show what's going on yeah. in Chuck's head. Yeah, and we could, we could say, okay, get out the Chuck rig, and we're going to do it the way we do it. And, and I, I'm just so proud of the fact that, that you guys and the directors are still trying to find new ways to express this. And you get a slightly different feeling from each one of these ways, uh, ways yeah. of doing it. We've, we've strapped cameras to Michael McKeon. Uh, we've used, you know, we've used GoPros. We've used uh, point of view shots. And they're all, they, they, they all have a, and this time you see, and it, the still frames of this scene, uh, it, it, yeah, with it, the three and four images at a time are pretty impressive. Did they're, you, they're now just how incredible. does that work? Did you, are those supers on top of each other? No, or? that's, that's, that's this hand crank that's, thing? That's the image on the hand Oh, okay. Crank I was curious that's about really that when cool. I saw that because I'm like, yeah. wow, I'm glad you brought that up because I'd like to actually, this is going to be, a, you know, an, an edit fest talk between me and Skip. On I, have this an, one. I have some questions about yeah, that. Yeah, and, and Chris, yeah. Because um, here's the thing, and, and Skip, I know that, you know, Chris, you, may, you might be able to chime in on this too. I know that on different, especially different interviews or different shows that I've gone to, there are so many times when they question us about Breaking Bad and a style and a gimmick and a thing. I, I definitely, you know, worked on something last year where I was questioned about this, trying to come up with something. And, you know, everybody wants to believe that, you know, Breaking Bad, all of that was defined so early. And it didn't. It grew. It grew. All of it grew organically in, in the five years that we did it. And, right. you know, there was very few rules that you laid out, Vince, very few, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, especially editorially, you didn't lay out a whole lot. Um, but All I remember is just never look me directly in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but the thing is, is that I, f- I find that, that in Hollywood, and you know, again, you guys tell me if, if you sort of have had this experience as well, that so many people are trying to come up or define something early. And what that does is it locks directors and producers, I suppose, and writers into something where you will not come up with it, with anything more artistic. And yeah. one of the things that that we're dealing with as, you know, during the show, as, as the show progresses, is the different ways to show Chuck's problems. Yeah, his affliction. And his dealing with his own problem has changed. It's not the same as it was. You know, I remember one of the first times we saw um, Chuck's experience. Chris, you actually cut that. I believe that was one. It was in one hundred and four. Yeah, and and that was when Chuck stepped outside to get the neighbor's newspaper. Mm -hmm. But you know, in the ways that Chuck is experiencing it now, it's very different. Yeah. And every director, just like you said, Peter, has come up with different ways to express this, and so it's very, very important. I think on other shows, not to handcuff people so you know again sorry you guys have you have you experienced this as well yeah i think that you know you go for me when i go to other shows and interviews they're all saying i love breaking bad we want it to look that way we Mm -hmm. want it to feel that way and it's like but it's not it's a different show so let's incorporate some of that but let's make it its own feel and these and they so they're they're on board with that but it's like everybody wants it to be what breaking bad was and we can't give it to them yeah. Well, we can try. Or and sometimes very rarely you'll, do they have the balls to stick with it. Yes. You'll be like, this is oh, yeah. how it would be. And they're like, well, that's 
This, wait, you stay in this wide why shot? Why are we in this yeah. wide shot for so long? We want close-ups. Because it's extraordinary. You yeah, know? that's why. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, I think it's it's definitely a credit to you guys. You guys did it in Breaking Bad, and you're doing it increasingly now, and it's not just us in editorial that feel this way. Yeah. It's that you're giving the directors, even last podcast when I said it seems like a competition of how many ways can we shoot just out? Shoot out yeah. You know, you're not handcuffing these people. Mm-hmm. You know, you're letting artists be artists. You know, you're letting artists create and I'm sure that you feel it as well Marshall because you're you know you're like okay well Gordon wrote a scene where it's all candles okay <laughs> you know did you by chance do a count of how many candles that you had to use no oh. I have no idea <laughs> did I, you I, Nina? I just remember <laughs> yeah we had I'm sure there's a budget somewhere that we really blew exactly our candle many. budget for the year we had you. half the crew running around with lighters to light candles and the other half with fire extinguishers to make sure none of them got out of hand that is <laughs> kind of different I was going to say is there a safety issue there must yeah. been a fire marshal there, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, yes. absolutely. Sorry, backing up to, to what you were talking about, the, the, the finding these these ways to, sh- to shoot Chuck and Chuck's crazy. One of the things I, I do, I love what you did in that scene, Skip, is if you watch the, the hand-cranked footage in the kitchen, Chuck ends up throwing the phone twice. Yes. <laughs> and it's this small, it's it's a small thing. You can, be, you can barely see it because it's in this double exposure, but you found that and you're like, I kind of like how this, this feels. And then you see him do it again on it the, in the, like, kind of, in the the normal footage. Yeah. yeah. Did you, would you were you when you did you try that without and find that? I was just curious. I like how just, did you? As we were like, going through and looking through different things, we were trying stuff. And when I saw that, it's like okay, I think this is going to be really interesting because if you don't notice it, you still see him throw the phone. I didn't notice yeah. it. And that if you do notice it, it's like what just happened. It's almost like you see what he wants to like what his brain is making him yeah. do before right. he does it. Right. That's true. I I love the way that scene's cut. I have another That's editing question sure. for you. Um, cuz like in in 102 there's like a there's a whole act that's it's like 13 14 minutes. It's Jimmy uh, with Tuco out in the desert. Oh, and that okay. I mean that scene is super complicated and then there's a scene in uh, 209 at Chuck's house with Kim and Jimmy and Chuck that is like deceptively complicated because it's you have to be at different times in different people's head the scene changes yeah like throughout so then which is a scene you cut i did cut that and it was it was real it was a real head scratcher how to even approach it because because of that very thing we talked about it we talked a lot about that scene in a narrative sense Mm -hmm. we talked about you know whose scene is it at what point do we or do we care about what somebody, where, whose head do we want to be in at what point? Sorry, right. And then, so then my question for you is, so there's like a combo of that with, especially with the final climax of this court, because yeah. it is it is like super duper long conversations and you have to really be in multiple heads yeah. at different and, times and sometimes even at the same time. I mean, how, what ta- was that a challenge? It to- was a real challenge. For, for one, there was so much, that's like a, a 15 or 16 page scene, I believe. And when Dan shot it, he was using three cameras most of the time. Where'd he hide them in that little bit of space? I don't know, but there were three cameras in a lot of that space. And I know you talk about how much footage Tom would give you. That scene, I think I had 16 hours of footage. You win. You win. I don't want to (laughs) win. I remember you watching dailies for days. For days. And it's just, you know, you have to sort through all of that footage first. And then just slowly piece it together and try to figure out whose headspace you need to be in and why you're in that headspace and trying to get 
the looks and the responses from everybody else, but it, it's real tricky and very time consuming to keep everybody alive. Absolutely. And you gotta watch every frame of that 16 hours. Absolutely. Well, wow. and and it, it, if, if, for, if you're listening and you haven't edited or been in an editing room, just 16 hours doesn't take you 16 hours to watch. No. You have to, you have to <gasps> stop, you're making notes, you're, you know, a lot, I, a lot of editors will make marks on it in, in the computer and you know, so we can go back to it and say, "Oh, I really like this." And so it takes—it's an incredibly time-consuming process. I'm sure not as not as time-consuming as it is to you know to. And the other thing too, write about it, it or light it, but man, it, it is really time-consuming. It, it probably takes you it, longer yeah. longer to watch it all than it did to shoot. I think so. Three because cameras. it's oh, definitely to yeah, shoot. It to definitely shoot. Yeah, takes yeah. longer than that. Cameras. Sure, yeah. it's three cams you got to watch, and and they. They shot three cameras at once, so no. Do you have to watch? Well, good question. You've got two cameras going, shooting the exact same footage. Do you have to watch every frame of all three cameras, or do you I watch do. the what You do? No, I do because yeah. I like to see. If you do the split screen where you can watch all three cameras at once, okay. it's a smaller image. Okay. I like to watch each one individually because I like wow. to get the looks on their faces, mm -hmm. their, their eyes, and just everything that's going on. And if you're watching three images at a time, you miss things. Also, when you split screen, you can fall victim to something that does happen on set sometimes where you're looking at multiple images and also the real life image. And you think, oh, we got that. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I think I saw that, but it your was mind, the wrong camera. Your mind puts you know? it together. Exactly. That is so true. As a director, I can second that. You have two monitors. I wish we could shoot everything with one camera. We just don't have the time. Yeah, that's and that's the. I'll bet you do too, because lighting wise, it's it's easier to light the most beautiful, perfect light for one camera than for two, and then three. That's exponentially harder still. Yeah, right? although, but to your credit, from the very beginning, we you know you were you were very clear that we didn't want to start compromising. So we never we never did that thing where we put the two cameras in the one spot, side by side, and right. and they're both fighting for that one primo thing. So right. we, we we decided right from the beginning we weren't going to do that. If we couldn't do it right, we weren't going to do it at all. Right. So. So, I mean, to Skip's credit, there's there's a lot of times in there where we were shooting in three different directions Damn. only because we could actually, we could control it and make it look correct for all three. Uh, so they could be in three completely separate parts of the room on the same take. And wow. And, also and, and there was that's this a hard thing to light for. you got to be a master to, yeah. to figure that and, out. And also sometimes on a second take, one of the cameras may shift off and go someplace yeah. else. So if you think all the setups are the same and you don't watch them all, right. you could miss yeah. something that Excellent could be very point. useful to you. Excellent Plus, point. For, for a lot of that, I, I remember very clearly in the, uh, when we were doing Chuck's coverage on the stand and we had, we were rolling three cameras on him, but there were, there were A and B mostly were in, were kind of getting different sides of him. And he, he the, the scene felt different when you watched a different monitor because he looked just a change of angle changed the mood of how he looked yes. like he, he he felt different even though he was doing the exact same performance but if you watched one monitor it was like oh okay that's it that's this and you had a different feeling watching the other because of how the light was hitting him so it yeah. was like you could imagine going if you were just watching one for one thing i, I don't know we I, I had to do that when we were on the day i'm like okay i just want to watch this one for this because this i feel like this is this part of the scene he's going to be here and then like swap to the other one yeah. and it was like okay this seems like it would be the look that would work better for this yeah. part of the scene because you don't so. get the chance to go watch it again we don't have playback oh. we don't have that only if you forbid if you completely kill your yeah. but something else yeah. i want to just uh, it's a question and as much as a shout out to editors and assistant editors you know in this day and age of video now not with film 
we roll a lot more because we can. And there's a lot of help to that on the set uh, where we don't cut and roll just specifically for the take. So it might continue to go on while a note is being given or an adjustment's being made because you do ultimately save time on the set. The actors can stay in mode, but it means an incredible, you know, doubles, triples, I don't know how much more footage it means you guys have to go through. So when you're sitting and watching, because I know oftentimes you'll even find, uh, you know, if there is a reaction you're looking for or something that came out of what even wasn't meant to be the take. So you're not just watching the actual take and, oh, now I know they're giving a note, I'm fast-forwarding this. Like, are you watching every single second? We watch everything. I watch before the slate because sometimes there's a look somebody gives you that may work for some place, even after cut. So we watch everything in those moments where they're, they're, they're resetting for a line. If the camera's on somebody else, they may give you a great look. So yeah, we so look at a, everything. So it's, it's a blessing and a curse in a sense, because you're getting more, but <laughs> that much <laughs> yes. more work you have to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, boy, there's sound like, the, what you guys are, t- there's so many things to, to mention here, but one, one of the things that Gordon just touched on is when people talk about composition, they think about, you know, landscapes or, or uh, really cool compositions that are asymmetrical or something, but the kind of composition we do a lot is thinking about how far away is the camera from the actor at this point? Is it above their eye line? Is it below their eye line? What lens are you on? And this episode is a great example of that because especially if you look at Michael McKeon, the camera using different different lens focal lengths and, and where Skip has decided to use them, they, the shots have a completely different feel. It's the, sa- the same guy sitting in the same chair, but with different lighting and different different uh, relationship to camera, and the, the the scenes the the shots feel completely different. And then so finally, building up to where Chuck goes on that terrific run of grievances he has against Jimmy, and he goes so into his head, and uh, the you guys are pushing into him, and it's you're pushing into him. It's not just a random push in, and this is something. I'm just speaking. I'm speaking for myself. I, I get very tired of push-ins. Uh, I feel like it's something that's overused. It's an overused piece uh, of camera movement where you're just kind of pressing in on a character uh, just to make it seem like something's happening, even if there's not. This is an example to me of a great push-in because the camera is pushing in on him. I don't know what lens it is. It's a relatively wide-angle lens, and it gets right up to Michael, and you get closer and closer, and it's. It's like a 3D shot. I, I really do. I wish the audience we could put 3D glasses on for that <laughs> shot because it's really a moment where uh, the actor and the camera are reinforcing each other, and you're getting into his head. And there's no trickery at all. And and yet that moment when he breaks and he looks around and realizes that he's gone too far, that he's he's hung himself with his own words. It's just tremendous. And to me, that's that is that is uh, that's filmmaking. It's something that we couldn't have done. Uh, it would be a great scene in the theater. It would be a great scene to watch in the theater, but it would have a completely different impact. It's the the actor, uh, the director, the camera operator, the cinematographer, the editor, all working together with with wonderful words that Gordon wrote, and it, and it just it kind of all adds up. It's more than the sum of its parts. Well, yes. I'm sorry. Why would it have a different? I think it would in have the, a different. The theater. I think it would have a different effect because of the intimacy that you have with it. If you were watching this scene in a theater your eye would be going to watch all the reactions of everyone everyone in the room. You'd be seeing, you'd say, oh, what does Kim think of him saying that? And you would see, even if, even if Kim was on stage, 
Uh, if Ray was on stage and you were watching her back, you would know what she was thinking. Oh, a Broadway, a Broadway stage, a Broadway stage. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm I was sorry, saying Broadway a movie stage. theater. Okay. I didn't mean a movie. I meant a uh, stage, meaning yeah. theater. Yeah. It's just it's using the me anyway. I'm I'm going off on a run myself, and I'm like like Chuck. I'm hanging myself with my own my own. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I'm that was just good. so I'm just so. Uh, it's just it, to me those are the moments that are. Uh, the most exciting because it's. I feel like we're we're making use of the medium to and and and, and yeah. everybody's kind of working together. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen every episode. It doesn't every every scene. But uh, when it does happen, it's it's real special. A lot yeah. of that has to do a large part is to to your guys' credit because you won't overuse a tool like that. So yeah, you save that's it the thing. For special occasions where it really matters, and yeah. that's what. What makes it to me so so poignant, so dramatic? Because yeah. you don't you don't waste it on, on other moments. All too often, it. things like that they're incredibly manipulative. They're definitely uh, a form. We're talking of, push-ins. Yeah, yeah, zoom-ins, dolly-ins. You know, or my least favorite thing. shot of in the history of motion pictures and the roving shot. The roving, yeah, the like the, the the bullshit, uh, just mm -hmm. uh, lateral dolly going left and, and, then right and, and, left and, and then right and then left and right. Just to, that is the director telling you, I hate every aspect of this scene. There's nothing good about it. I gotta I gotta jazz We're it up. We're putting it on record bullshit. right now. We yeah. want you to know. I hope you all are listening. Knock it off. We're gonna do a book of bullshit. Yeah, it's gonna be one of the. Pieces. That is um, the biggest bullshit shot in yeah. the history of, of <laughs> like motion pictures. Shot. Yeah. Um, no, you know it's it's look it's it's been a sort of a staple of, you know, sort of modern filmmaking for quite a while. But I think that in especially lately, I would say in the last 10, 15 years, there's sort of been a renaissance of and different shows, especially now in television, where shows are 60 hours long rather than you know. Uh, you know, one hour long or two hours long, you know, that you get a good 60 hours of story instead of, you know, the sort of episodic thing where it just repeats. And yeah. you have been able to establish different styles. Breaking Bad had, you know, a style. Better Call Saul is having a style. The Sopranos had a style. Mm -hmm. You know, True. Mad Men had a style. True. You know, I think one of the things that's come out of that is being able to sit in a shot for longer than you would normally shoot. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing you said, Vince, a long time ago in Breaking Bad is I want to see wider shots because I don't see those on TV. I see a lot of close-ups, so let's take advantage of, of the big Albuquerque sky or the big, yeah. you know, vistas that we have. And, you know... Um, geography is uh, important, too. You, how do you have geography? How do you have a true sense of where you are and, and where you are in the place that you are if you don't go wide from time to time? Mm -hmm. yeah. My personal feeling is, look, if you want to do one of these push-ins or moves or whatever, give us one where you don't do it. You know, give us a chance. You know, if you want to do it as a director... Fine, do two and do the third one without moving, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, our tools are so good now and our cameras are so good now that we can blow up and push in and we can do it, you know, ourselves. Whereas a lot of times, you know, and this is, you know, forgive me, Marshall, I might step on your toes here, but a lot of times when you're trying to do a on set, there's a whole different set of issues. You, did you get the focus? Did the focus, you know, did did the focus uh, continue? And is it good focus? It, was there a little bump on the camera, you know, on the, you know, when you tried to do that? Whereas it, you know, here we can do that. And we don't have those problems. So if it's really, really necessary for us to have that move, sometimes it's better to let us do it in post rather than. You know, but if it's baked in, we can't do anything about it. You know, if if the if it's moving in and we need it, you know, solid, we can't do anything. Well, this is you know, this is a whole. I mean, this opens up a whole mm -hmm. other 
conversational thread, which I, I don't want to get too deep into, but the downside of being able to fix a bunch of things in post, quote unquote, and it is great that we have these tools now, but it doesn't, what's the word, abrogate the responsibility of the director, am I using that word right? Yes, you are. Mm -hmm. To, he or she needs to have a plan from the get-go. And there is such a thing as shotgun, there are a lot of famous directors, I'm not gonna name them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of famous directors who made quite a career on, on getting their DP to shoot every conceivable angle. You do this in movies, you can't do this on TV, but big, big budget movies shooting every conceivable angle and then just throwing all that footage uh, at, uh, at the editor and saying, call me when you're done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to Vegas, baby. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just that you have responsibility, a moral responsibility and an artistic one, I think. That's just my take on it, to have a, have a plan. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean it's always going to work. Doesn't mean you may not change that plan uh, in, once you're in post in the editing room. But if you're depending on, and the stuff that you three guys do, Skip, Kelly, Chris, uh, it, it, not to take anything away from that because you have saved our bacon a great many times and will continue to, but uh, you gotta, it's just, it's a moral imperative on my, to my way of thinking that a director have a plan, whether it works or not. You gotta have that plan. You just can't shotgun everything and then say fix it in post. And that's something on this episode that Dan did. He didn't shotgun the approach, but every time we were in the courtroom, we had different angles. So it didn't feel like we were in the same place all the time, shooting yeah. the same directions or the same angles. Yeah. And I thought that was really great. You know, at the different times that we were there, we yeah. had different places That was to go. his mm -hmm. plan to make it look very different from mm -hmm. scene to scene. I yeah. agree. Because it's and funny. That's why it never gets boring. I, it's a different scene every time. And that's, yeah. also, that's also good producing because the producers didn't say, you need to block shoot this. We need to shoot everything facing the witness stand. Let's get all, let's get all that. That would have been let's disastrous. Get all, let's get all that at once. <laughs> that let's that get all that turn around and we'll do we'll get everybody everything but there are situ i mean boy I, i'm willing to bet they probably did perry mason that way uh, <laughs> but uh you know it's just it's just something it's just uh fortunately we're, we're not in the position where we have to do that kind of stuff i've been seeing a lot of perry i'm not keeping kidding here I, on uh, me tv i've been seeing a lot of perry mason lately it is it is for the the at, at the time for the budget constraints that it no doubt was under it is actually a very well shot mm -hmm. show and and Marshall, good thing to bring up with you. It's shot in black and white. Now, how much harder is black and white than color to shoot beautifully? You know, I don't think I ever spent enough time shooting black and white to really know the subtle nuances that they knew then knew how to, to manipulate them. I and there were all of these stories about odd colored makeup and different colored dressing and stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, it can be very difficult because you gotta you you're trying to make subtle shades of gray. Tell us, help tell a story. And differentiate from few, one another. Yeah, you you the colors can differentiate from one another, but uh, but subtle shades of gray you got to make us pop from one another. Hey, Skip has, Skip to, go. has to go. Oh shoot! No, oh, I have a, an appointment I can't miss. I'm so sorry, I Skip. Write, but, uh, I'm sorry. Thank it you very great. much. Thank you guys. Awesome. Thank you so much. See you tomorrow for episode nine. Great yeah. job, Skip. Excellent job. See you guys later. Thanks Bye, Skip. Again. Thank, Thank you. So Thank much, you Skip. so much. Sorry. So you know what? I, we probably got to be wrapping up pretty soon. We got to talk we about do. some of the wonderful, wonderful guest actors you guys yeah. found for this episode. You want to talk about some of them? Yeah, and also talk about you know reaching again. Vince Vincent in the last podcast, he said we reach into the past, and I'm like, don't you mean you reach into the future? To determine the past did you say that or did you say that peter well that's a good way to put it yeah that <laughs> makes my head hurt just trying yeah. to figure all that out but yeah i guess technically you, that's we true. reach around the past to reach <laughs> the future that's to that's, hold the future to right? hold the future <laughs> 
tightly gently, in our hands. Gently but firmly. Yes. Yeah, I think so. That's... So reach. You definitely reached into the future to bring back, and also what I. I'm mentioning this because you not only brought back a character, you brought back a concept or a story point and and sort of doubled down on that story point to use an, a very political term nowadays, I guess. Yes, we Go did. For it. We did. We brought back, I, I assume you're referring to the, the wonderful Lavelle Crawford. You are! Yay! Who's lost back. a lot of weight. Wow. Mm-hmm. Or, it looks or, good. Or yeah. he gained it or, in yes, the perspective right. of yeah, time. Yeah, one in the of future. The no, yes, he's, <laughs> Lavelle, as, as the actor, has, has uh, lost a lot of weight. He looks great. He looks great. Yeah, he does. None of it came out of his wonderfully distinctive face and head so that we could definitely recognize Lavelle as Huel and just uh, we we were as we were breaking it we came up with this you know our, our Perry Mason moment and how the how the pieces were fitting together we're like well you know is there a way that Jimmy could get something into his pocket and it was like We've got to do this. Yeah. We've got because we because yes, we had had the story that point. That was on a Ring good Man. day in the writers' room. That was. It was like yes, because we, we you know we have this board that as we mentioned on the podcast before that we have this whole list of characters that we we could bring back either from both from Better Call Saul and from Breaking Bad, and and Huel has Huel was one of the first names we put up there because we knew we had a relationship with with uh, with Saul. Saul Goodman. So we're like, what if? What do we see? What, what what would that look like? Which also led us to to um, the scene with Joe DeRosa. Yeah, with the vet. Uh, the vet. Yeah. Hooray! Uh, who's yeah, also so there's that connection. Who's also great. And we you know we we wanted to say that like there is a reason even though we we've had a lot of Mike and Jimmy separate. There is some reason for us that that feels necessary for the, those two stories to be told together because they kind of are feeding off each other and as Mike's connections grow in the underworld and he's his connection with the vet has definitely grown now we're seeing that you know he the the vet says our 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 mutual friend or our, I think it's his our mutual friend not our crusty friend and that's Mike so Jimmy got this got this information from Mike to go go see the vet as somebody that could broker this this information so those those strands of our world are knitting together in a certain way and that's something we talked about last week too the the fun of seeing people together that we haven't seen together yet and we haven't seen Jimmy and the veterinarian together yeah. Yeah. I love Joe DeRosa uh, I'm, I'm unapologetic yeah. I got to talk to him I could barely I was like a schoolgirl talking to him at the premiere yeah again yeah. the same he's the nicest guy yeah he's, he doesn't he's super warrant, nice yeah, he's really like, down to earth hey. was fun. what i love about his character is not only is he part of the underworld but he really loves being a vet yeah no he yes, loves his animals like, he he's like, really mad about that yeah. fish yeah. Yeah. Like, put, put a bubbler it's, in there it's something yeah. that we wanted that we thought was interesting and fun and that we you know that that he's what is also is a fun thing to do with Joe because it's like he's so jaded as the the, the guy who gets you things. I can get you this. Yeah, all right, fine. How's your dog? Yeah. <laughs> like he it. just he changes and he's kind yeah. of he's there's a natural sweetness to the guy that I think comes out in yeah. those moments that we were able to showcase. So I love that. I love the way um, you wrote that scene. That was a great scene. Hey, Vince, look. The, oh, look at that. <laughs> That's a C-130. Yeah. Right, outside, right outside our window right now, <laughs> a, a C-130. Plane. C-130. <laughs> from Burbank Airport. Vintage That's, World War II plane. Heading west. Jimmy sitting in the vet's office holding a goldfish is just absolutely one of the, <laughs> yeah, my favorite yeah. moments of the year. And, uh, and the other guy, the, the guy with his iguana and uh, the, the woman with the sort of shaggy dog. Oh, the iguana was, that was hilarious. Dan's yeah. directive, right, to make sure we... He wanted to try and get those, like, pets that look like their owners yeah. kind of <laughs> oh, sense yeah. of things. It was good. And we have Jimmy with the, his goldfish. Also in this episode uh, is Queen Myth Antwerp. 
yes. uh, playing playing Robert Alley, and he yes. he is great. I, I we first actually saw him for the previous. He auditioned we for did. us for the previous episode to play. Uh, the assistant manager at Los Poyos. That's right. Yeah. The assistant manager at Los Poyos, and he, we felt like maybe he was almost too command, this too commanding for that role. Yeah. And then we had the thought of making uh, Ali younger, because the truth is, in in real life, uh, a lot of the prosecutors you'll run across are actually quite young. They're 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 beginning their careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was. It was. It, boy, he did a wonderful did a job. job. Yeah, and is he now? You said something about he's he's a Broadway. He is. He's a star. Broadway. He he's a Broadway actor. Uh, he's a song and dance man. He wow. he had been in uh, Jersey Boys for years wow. until it, like to to the end of the show. Um, I don't know. No, he he came in sort of midway through their very long run of that show. I don't I don't know what character he played, but but he was one of the Jersey Boys. And then and he actually when he got on set. He went up to to Michael McKeon and was like, "Oh, you know, good to meet you. Actually, we were in a show because they were in I can't remember. I think it was Hair or something like that at the Hollywood Bowl." Oh, wow. Speaking yeah, of so. naked, we we have we're we're at that time. It's so funny. Let's how all these take our clothes off, you guys. Let's go <laughs> <laughs> like, how are well, you pulling that together? Well, you know I don't know. I'm not. We're over schedule I have to say one more. Mention one more actor, John Getz. Oh yeah, John Getz. We were so. I mean, I have to say, I was I was beside myself when we found out it was a possibility getting him into the show and getting him into this episode. Of course, John Getz. Uh, who we all remember from Blood Simple, yes. yeah, uh, the Coen Brothers' very first movie. Wonderful actor, and it was—I felt he was so generous uh, to come and play this role, which um, is, you know, is, I mean, he really brings such yeah. humanity to this guy uh, that maybe, maybe was there on the page, and maybe wasn't. But he was—he was wonderful. Yeah, it was very important, I think, that that you know, that they not that be that the 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 committee is not. Completely bored by the, these proceedings as a workaday thing, but also that they're not hard asses. They're, they're yeah. not. They're not the tough judges who are hanging. You know that that they're they're fair and that maybe there's a chance of this going Jimmy's yeah. way. But also they want to get to the truth. They want to get to the feel. truth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think they 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 all did a great job. Uh, Excellent. Job. Led all by John. Gass. I don't but, uh, remember the guy's name. I think the scene was in it. We can cut it if it wasn't. Wasn't your buddy from 309 yes. also the guy Michael, who ran the Mike, bank? Michael thing? Chifo. Yes. Michael yeah. Chifo. Yeah. Michael Chifo, our banking com- commissioner, Michael Chifo, who is, uh, who is a, a wonderful guy, came back, uh, was very nice to come back for one scene. He's yes. married to uh, a wonderful actress you should all look up, Beth Grant. Who is who is who is uh, yeah. who is an out, they're both they're both outstanding performers and wonderful people and uh, I've known them for a long long time and oh. he's just a wonderful guy and I'm so glad he I'm so it's glad good to see him, him again. again yeah good seeing him and I know we're I know we're wrapping up but. God, Ray Seahorn continues to be amazing. Oh yeah, I know her. we barely even got to no, talk no, about her. I love but Ray. That that little <laughs> that little breath that she gives out after she talks to Mesa Verde to like come clean with yeah. them. Mm-hmm. That is extraordinary. She's so great, She's and great. and I love that moment. I'm glad that we held in that moment. It's, Everybody's great. In I think yeah. Ray and Patrick. Patrick is. Patrick's they, great. They're both really yeah. great, and it was really fun to see them kind of having a chance to to joust yeah. about kind of their. Because they have a shared history too. That's that's sort of percolating under under things here. So I think they had fun with it, and I think I don't know. I, I like watching them. And, and Michael, of course, deserves an Emmy. That amazing, the it's, amazing it's meltdown amazing. at the end. I mean, so hopefully great. that goes without saying. Hopefully, uh, but also. 
Mr. Bob Odenkirk, I got to say, because he's very quiet for a lot of this episode. He's sitting there, and Kim is being his lawyer and doing a lot of the talking and, and wonderfully doing it wonderfully. But he never stops acting throughout any of it. Every time you cut to him, there's something going on. Yeah. You know, you can read his mind. You can read his emotions, certainly. And then at the end, when, when he becomes uh, counsel and he cross-examines uh, his brother, I love the way, I, to me, that's some of the best acting he's ever mm-hmm. done in, in now going on two and a half seasons. Uh, because he's out to get his brother because he has to. But there is a sadness. Mm-hmm. There is a... Uh, it's reluctant. A reluctance yeah. on his part, emotionally. I mean, he, he wants to get him, and yet he doesn't. He wants to win, and yet he doesn't. Yeah, he's I mean, very emotional. It's, he's always an, been very emotional, especially with this character. There's an emotional ambivalence here mm-hmm. that seems very authentic as as in terms of what it would be if this were, these were real people and this mm-hmm. was really happening. And there, it, there's a lot of layers of emotion going on. And this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, uh, but I'm just going to put it out there. I mean, I've never seen this level of simultaneous emotion. I, I, not because he's never been able to do it before now, but just because maybe it's just never been, he's never been called on to do it. But I, I, I saw a different Bob Odenkirk in this scene. And mm-hmm. I just was stunned by it. He's, I, yeah. I think he's absolutely marvelous. Yeah, and I think towards that, like his, you don't feel like he's silent through most of the episode. No, you he's don't. He's silent through most of yeah, the episode. True. He has mm-hmm. almost nothing to say. And but he's a, he's so alive in those moments that when he gets into his his big scene, his, it he, I don't know, it doesn't feel like oh he, Bob's just been sitting there this whole time. It yeah. feels like all of that ambivalence is still playing out, and it comes to a climax. Like yeah. he has an arc that he's he's sort of mapped out through yeah. the course of that scene. That's true. So, so true. I, we got to do one last thing uh, if you want to. Do you want to talk about the dedication? Sure, sure. I can talk about the dedication. Uh, I'll probably get misty, but I appreciate it. So the the dedication is to my mom, who passed away very suddenly last summer, uh, shortly before we started breaking this episode, I think. Um, yeah, and she she was uh, an advisor to the show, and she was also a lawyer, uh, tax attorney, and so she she helped us with the uh, the IRS scene in Breaking Bad. She helped us a lot with uh, some of the Sandpiper stuff when we when we were coming up with that. So. Um, I appreciate that uh, you guys put put a little dedication to her. She was a good lady, so. and she was a friend of the show. I'm sorry and to she, hear that, Gordon. So. And, we, and we wouldn't have you if not for her. <laughs> that's literally true. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. So that's yeah, that's a, a little little shout out to my mom who uh, you know loved the show and and loved being you know involved in it. So and she's really proud of you. Yeah. Absolutely. As are we. Thanks. As are Thanks. we. Yeah. As are we all. There's a lot to Very. be proud of. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of proud. Yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for uh, – this is this is a really good conversation. I, I really love this episode, like I said before. And um, thanks, Marshall, for uh, being here again. And Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Nina, thank you again. Always much. love it. Thank you. And Gordon. Thank you. Great thank work. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you very much, Peter Fence, for coming out. This was a good one. I enjoyed this one. What what a good one. And uh, thank you, Kelly, for bringing me back here. Thank you, Chris. Couldn't do it without you. uh, We're a team. We're a team. We're a team. We're a team. That's true. And teamwork makes the dream work, as they say. And uh, and yeah, and thank you guys for listening. A lot of thanks there at the end. And um, Nina. Nina. We would love for you to take us out with a little Better Call Saul. Put some stink on it. Better Call Saul. Yeah! That was a good one. That was a good one.
with authority. 